Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, and I'm very pleased to bring in our guest, uh, who is Frank Britt, who is the CEO at Penn Foster, the leading provider of EdTech-enabled workforce solutions for students and employers in training and selection of frontline workers. Frank is a thought leader with a unique perspective that focuses on frequently underemphasized aspects of the workforce and new economy skills in the 21st century. I had the pleasure of sitting in on an interview with Frank at the Holland IQ Global Summit in New York, and I was impressed by his perspective and advocacy for a middle-skilled uh, workforce. And I'm very happy to welcome Frank to Training in Education. Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So uh, can we begin by talking a little bit about uh, what is Penn Foster? Uh, its origin story is super interesting. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that and then uh, maybe share with us what Penn Foster's mission is today. Uh, certainly. Why don't I start with the present and then uh, tag back to the, the original notion of what Penn Foster was and is. Uh, Penn Foster is an organization today that uh, is premised on the notion that there's a very large, meaningful percentage of our workforce, so-called middle-skilled workers, that uh, are in need of ongoing training, upskilling, and alike, but lack either uh, access and or affordability to getting the kinds of support they need to mobilize in their careers. And so the Penn Foster Institution's charter is to try to help people uh, make the thoughtful choices for them at this moment in a changing economy and a changing workforce and put them on a path for economic mobility, uh, skill attainment, and ultimately uh, greater empowerment to take, uh, to take better control of wherever they go with their careers. Penn Foster itself, the enterprise, is uh, of some scale. Uh, we're, I think, the largest or among the largest uh, platform companies in the country that explicitly and exclusively focuses on the middle skill workforce or what some people call the, the frontline workforce. It's a part of the economy that I think is uh, underappreciated in terms of its scale and scope. There's about 130 million adults at work in the United States, half of whom are actually so-called middle skilled workers which are roughly defined by the Department of Labor as people with an associate degree or less. And so that's the workforce that we're preoccupied with. We tend to think of the education system at large as a $1.3 trillion market in the United States. You had K-12 on one end, higher education the other. And there's this large opaque market in the middle, uh, roughly two to $300 billion, according to some estimates. And we call that the workforce development marketplace. And that's where we're most preoccupied. As to how we got here, uh, we got here because way back a long time ago, 129 years ago, uh, there was a series of mining accidents in Pennsylvania. And this fellow Thomas Foster came to realize that one of the root causes was a lack of training. And so thus was born the International Correspondence School, uh, which sent out its first uh, book by mail in 1890. And through its history, its very storied history, the International Correspondence School, which then became ICS for most of the 20th century, has uh, educated you know, literally tens of millions of people. But the consistent narrative from really its inception is focused on the blue collar workforce as it was once known. And to the present, we've remained true to that brand idea that there's another half of the economy that needs support. And uh, we're an organization that's committed to trying to, uh, to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's super interesting. And uh, I was mentioning uh, when we were setting up here that uh, I think I've fall, fallen prey to the same uh, trap that's out there uh, when thinking about education and the workforce writ large is to focus on uh, maybe the the top end of the workforce, the most highly skilled in demand 
uh, you know, the, the engineering, computer science, data science, all the 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 new hotness, all the trendier uh, things that that folks talk a lot about. But what I found really interesting about your perspective is that you're focusing on uh, workers who, uh, in many ways, are the front lines of uh, the new wave of automation that we're all anticipating. And uh, I've heard I've heard you talk in a really interesting way about the future of work. And uh, I'd love to hear from your perspective uh, what people frequently get wrong uh, and perhaps what they get right uh, when thinking about the future of work uh, and then specifically thinking about the future of work as it relates to uh, to middle skilled workers. Well, I think the first thing they uh, quote get wrong is they just don't appreciate the scale and scope of the size of this market. I mean, we've got you know almost half the workforce in the United States are middle skilled. And while there's lots of apocalyptic narratives regarding automation, which we'll likely come back to later, the reality is if you were to do a scan of the job openings in the United States today, you know, about half the job openings in the United States today are actually middle skilled related jobs. Mm -hmm. Now those jobs are going through, like all jobs, quite a bit of transformation, uh, but just because the manufacturing facility has more auto automation, it doesn't mean the job doesn't exist, it just means the job design exists. So what we see happening is the underlying job designs are absolutely changing through cognitive augmentation, the use of machine learning and the like, but the, the jobs themselves, not in all cases, but in many cases, uh, will remain. We've just finished a very sizable proprietary study, for example, in manufacturing, which is a, a very topical issue in, in the mainstream media. And what we found, this is an empirical study uh, coupled with you know, hundreds of interviews with employers. It is the case that there is a modest contraction, modest contraction of the number of manufacturing jobs in the United States. However, if you looked at it from our perspective, which is the, the need for upskilling and training, Interestingly, that number actually goes up in that context because while the number of humans that are needing to be reskilled is modestly declining, the magnitude of the reskilling is actually growing. And so it nets out to be, from an indexing perspective, more aggregate demand for uh, upskilling and reskilling, even in the manufacturing sector, which would be kind of a, a typical target of people talking about the future of work and, and jobs going away. So I think the general meta miss is big market. Um, that has real opportunity, but it also has unique complexities. You know, there are uh, academic, financial, and emotional uh, design considerations. If you think about what is the optimal learning experience for this particular cohort that is very different than serving a traditional white collar professional. And so part of why we've been able to carve out to some degree a, a, a sort of a positional scarcity, and by that I mean an institution that uh, occupies a part of the larger education economy that is somewhat underserved and historically uh, ignored is that uh, there just aren't that many other institutions of our scale that are preoccupied with this unique cohort of creating solutions for them that help them achieve both their financial academic and um, and ultimately career related objectives so i think that that's kind of the, the the big the big the big miss is it's it's a big challenge a big opportunity uh, the good news is and we can talk more about this there are new voices emerging in the ecosystem that are shining the light on this part of the economy. And I think it might be a good segue to talk about uh, what are those new voices, in particular the voice of the employer, which as you know from our conversations is really becoming uh, the megaphone that's gonna change not just the larger education system, but particularly the, the, the narrative relative to the, to the middle skilled workforce. 
Yeah, uh, very much uh, in line with uh, the direction that, that I think we should take. And, and just to sort of emphasize your point, one thing we've talked about a lot on this show is uh, the idea of, uh, you know, the whole learner, the whole student, uh, trying to understand folks within their context, trying to understand, uh, you mentioned uh, the word emotional, um, you know, the idea that these middle skilled employees uh, are demands on their time, demands on their, um, uh, even their economic situation are, are pretty unique. And I, and I think that's where both being empathetic to that workforce uh, is something I've, I've very much been hearing from you throughout uh, my exposure to, to your thinking, but also, um, you know, pivoting to what you're talking about, uh, the, the idea that modern uh, work, uh, modern organizations are thinking about this cohort in a, in a very different way and are partnering with companies like Penn Foster to figure out how do we upskill, outskill, uh, reskill uh, this cohort. So um, I would like to pivot maybe towards uh, your predictions. You know, we're, uh, we're a trend spotting show and we love predictions and uh, 2020 in many uh, ways is the year of the prediction. So good job by you for having uh, five predictions for the world of work in, in 2020. But I, I'd love to, to explore those and maybe get into some of the specifics uh, that you reference there uh, and just talking through them uh, real quickly and then I think we can, uh, can dive back in. So the first is uh, learning to work becomes uh, working to learn. Uh, so we'll dig in a little on that. The second is uh, the apprenticeship of the future. So the idea that apprenticeships uh, are a really old model that is now being recast uh, in, in the context of the 21st century. The rise of outskilling, which is an interesting uh, term. Uh, and it, we have talked on this show about the, the Amazon Career Choice Program, which is one of your examples there. Uh, the potential of first mile services, which, uh, which I like uh, also in terms of opening up the perspective there so that it's not, um, you know, frequently we think about the last mile and just in time training, but the first mile is, is uh, perhaps an underrepresented uh, aspect of the needs here where, you know, just getting folks onboarded and ready enough so that they're able to, uh, to engage with their education, uh, I think is a really interesting space. Uh, and then the, the last of the five is getting unstuck in the middle. So, um, you know, which is sort of what we've been talking about really uh, throughout. So um, really interesting post here that we'll share out uh, from Frank and team at, uh, at Penn Foster. But um, it's a lot to chew on there, uh, Frank. So uh, I don't know, maybe you want to uh, tackle them in order or tackle them in whatever uh, whatever way you think makes makes the most sense, but maybe we'll begin by uh, talking about learning to work uh, is becoming uh, working to learn. Yeah, so the, uh, the first of those themes, as you know, is about the changing social compact that exists between the individual and the employee. For uh, the last several years, what we've seen is an emergence of a new conversation regarding in a uh, near uh, full employment market, how do you compete for talent, again, for the middle skilled workforce as opposed to the knowledge workers? And as we deconstruct that from a, what is the employer value proposition to the employee, one of the obvious observations that um, has become somewhat self-evident at this point to at any progressive organization that hires at scale this cohort is that historically, the usual factors of wages and culture 
and obviously benefits and the like, uh, those are all very important and remain essential. But what's starting to happen, fortunately, uh, and not a minute too late, is that there's a recognition that while training about the job you're doing is always essential, uh, what has been missing historically, in contrast to the white collar professionals, has been any kind of commitment to upskilling folks as it relates to their career mobility. So beyond the actual task at large within a store context or a plant context, what are the skills and investments you're making my future so that I can either stay in the role I'm in if I'm satisfied, but I have mobility, whether it be vertically or laterally in my career. And so what we've seen is companies starting to really embrace that idea uh, at scale. And if you take firms like McDonald's, for example, they even speak about the fact that as opposed to offering what I just said, which is get a job here and you'll get opportunities for selected upskilling programs, they're now even going beyond that saying, effectively, you know, the reason to come work at McDonald's is to get the learning. And by the way, we'll pay you while you're here. Now, of course, you know, they likely wouldn't take the job if they weren't getting paid. But the, the general notion here is that it's a subtle but fairly profound shift in orientation that says that the way you're going to underwrite and finance your schooling is going to be through working. And historically, at best, it's been a, an incremental benefit, although generally not available to the middle school workforce. It's never been positioned as you should come learn and then you can make some money as part of it. That's a that's a very different narrative, which it takes a significant a significant amount of institutional commitment. But it, what reflects is that the misperception that this middle skill workforce doesn't have the ambition that a white collar professional has. That's nothing could be farther from the truth. If you live and breathe and spend time with as we do day to day with folks at this part of the economy, the, the dynamics they live in their life, the drag coefficients they have to encounter are very different than ours. It could be childcare uh, with scarcity. It could be access to transportation. It could be uh, flexible hours in their job. So these folks have as much or more grit and resiliency than frankly uh, I know I have and, and you might have as well. And so I think this idea of embracing this cohort, uh, not with uh, pity and sympathy, but with affirmation and presumption of an aspiration that they have in their lives and really framing learning as a primary part of the value proposition. That's what Walmart's doing. That's what Amazon's doing. That's what uh, many, many leading employers, EmployBridge, which is one of the largest staffing companies, along with, uh, um, you know, really many, many big companies at this stage of the game are all embracing this idea that if you really want to compete for talent and middle skills, you have to offer more than just uh, wages and a safe working environment. And we think that foreshadows a very different narrative on the access and opportunity that the middle school population is going to have to uh, to taking again better better control of their economic futures. Yeah, uh, fantastic stuff there, and it uh, it reminds me of the the old saw of the last ten years, which is you know every company needs to be a technology company. Uh, I think what you're pointing out here, and we've talked about it many times on this show, is that every organization really needs to be a learning organization. And if you're, you're not able to unlock the potential of your workforce, uh, you're actually at a disadvantage to the organizations that are, are, are really thinking uh, strategically about the opportunity there. And then in particular, um, the gaps around uh, the middle skilled workforce, uh, you know, the fact that it makes up half of the entirety of the US workforce uh, on the one hand, and that uh, the skills gaps that emerge even through automation uh, are frequently uh, focused on this middle skilled space. And uh, in some ways it seems like the, you know, we're almost 
under leveraging uh, the opportunity here, uh, which which I think is uh, was, is a real insight, and uh, and I do appreciate you you putting this thinking out there because because uh, I think it has helped evolve my thinking. Um, Can I just add one comment to that? Just, sure, if please. you were to put your uh, your deep analytical rigor hat on on this topic, there's about twenty two billion dollars a year spent on tuition reimbursement in the United States from corporations, mm -hmm. and less than five percent of that is spent on the middle skill cohort. Now that's not to suggest that knowledge workers don't need to continue to remain current and upscale, but if you think about the uncertainty in the economy, the rate of skills obsolescence, the risk of automation, you would think that there'd be a much greater emphasis in terms of uh, investments in those types of programs around the middle skills. And the good news is that that is exactly what we're starting to see at leading employers like Walmart, Disney, Lowe's, and others, that they are in fact re-optimizing their tuition reimbursement dollars to make it available to the middle school cohort to complement the investments in traditional training and 21st century training that are needed for them and their jobs themselves. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's also a, a perhaps back to the big five themes, a interesting segue to a second somewhat counterintuitive prediction, which is what we call the rise of outskilling. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, just about a week or so ago in the future of, uh, the future of everything section that uh, use the term outskilling, which is a, a phrase that we use. And it's counterintuitive in that to the extent you're going to make an, a decision to underwrite investments and upskilling of the workforce, uh, the premise historically has been, uh, although not often enough as we've established, but the premise has been that that person would stay longer and that person would therefore drive greater long-term impact and productivity within the employer is a fair trade of if I invest in your capabilities. It seems more than reasonable that I would get some return from that. But what's starting to happen which is this notion of outscaling is as bigger corporations look at the long term and they see some of the more fundamental shifts in their workforce design, they're confronted with this interesting ethical dilemma, which is if I know two or three years from today that that call center I have in Des Moines is likely to be half its size, what is my obligation to take preemptive steps to help them because I do actually need that workforce today. And so rather than the old school 1980s, you know, we'll make a big announcement and lay off people, that model doesn't work anymore because the weaponization of social media is such that if you don't treat people respectfully and responsibly, particularly in this so-called post-capitalist world, you're going to get scorched from the media and from, depending if you're a consumer business or a B2B business, a, a very amplified platform environment across all the different social platforms. So what we're starting to see is employers like, for example, uh, Amazon saying, our proposition to you is come work here, do a good job, be paid fairly but we'll upskill you to leave eventually Amazon and help you secure employment outside of the Amazon uh, company at large. And now likely be part of the larger Amazon ecosystem of suppliers and customers, but you will actually be an employee somewhere else. So they're, they're having the, the, the longer term horizon that says not everyone in the long run is gonna be a good fit, but they're good people. They need to be respected and the dignity of work matters. And so we're gonna help underwrite that. And we see that as a, a second big mega trend that. Uh, was I think very well articulated uh, by Lauren in the in the recent Wall Street Journal article. Yeah, and I, I think that one's also uh, really interesting when you think about. Uh, I've heard you talk, and we, we did a show uh, a, a little while back about the Business Roundtable's uh, memo uh, about uh, social impact, uh, thinking about social justice, and thinking about uh, you know how providing uh, a social good to your workforce is 
in many ways becoming uh, table stakes to stay relevant in the next, say, five to 10 years. And uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, because I think uh, in some ways, uh, you know, I, th I think following uh, some of your thinking has, has helped evolve and, and sort of flesh out my thinking. But, but it does seem like, you know, just like I was saying before, uh, you know, every organization needs to be a learning organization. Um, I think also thinking about um, doing good for your workforce, uh, to your point, even if they're not necessarily going to be a 20, 30 uh, year career within your organization is still uh, ultimately a net benefit for both the organization and the individual. So uh, I'd love to hear a little bit of your thinking on that. Uh, well, we think of, first of all, Penn Foster as a social enterprise because our notion is that if we are successful in what we do, we will drive long-term wage gains. And that has a whole sec set of both primary and second order social impacts on uh, families and communities. In fact, all of our financial sponsors at Penn Foster are in fact social impact investment funds. So if you look at someone like the Bain Capital Double Impact Fund or the Prudential Impact Fund, those are the folks that uh, are the underwriters of Penn Foster's business. And so by natural extension, this idea of purpose and profit is very much at the DNA of what we do and, and how we think about it. There are some, as you know, very thoughtful and very influential people who are calling for companies to take more responsibility for ensuring their workers have the right standard of living. And I think there's a general recognition that over the last 10 years, the workforce that we're talking about, the so-called middle skilled, have had uh, wage stagnation and they have grave concerns regarding the impact on technology and ultimately uncertainty about their future. And that has started to manifest itself in lots of dimensions politically and otherwise. And so we view companies uh, moving now from the rhetoric and maybe the philanthropic oriented approach of social corporate responsibility to one where they're recognizing that uh, in this sort of post-capitalist world, they need to take a much more uh, directive set of engagement priorities. And in so doing, they're making upskilling a very fundamental one because interestingly, beyond healthcare uh, and physical security, you know, wage sustainability and wage security is arguably, you know, one of the three most important things for a, a vibrant life where you can contribute and not have the, the very challenging risk of poverty and, and incarceration, those sorts of things. So education is a positive correlation to health outcomes and obviously a positive correlation to, uh, you know, societal outcomes at large. And so we're, we see companies really leaning in on that. And we, um, we applaud it, A, because it's corporate social responsibility changing in the best sense, and B, it's very much aligned to the DNA of what we um, we believe we our you know our enterprise design is unique as an institution. Uh, we do not accept student loans. We think that the student loan model is uh, premised on some assumptions that we uh, necessarily find challenging. Most notable one is the issue of where risk should be assigned in the value chain. Mm -hmm. And if you and I have a, a relationship and we're executing a transaction, the question of where the risk in that relationship should be borne is always sort of at the core of the of the exchange and obviously if you if you exchange capital directly the premise is that uh, there's going to be a fair return on that investment uh, but if you think about a student loan what essentially you're doing is asking a person to believe in the return on investment that has yet to be realized and you know hopefully it does and we certainly encourage you know anyone who's has that orientation to lean in and do that having said that our model is such that we ask you to pay as you go 
So if you keep using the service, you should continue to pay. But if for whatever reason you stop using it, either because you find that the product doesn't match your needs or life gets in the way or a variety of other very legitimate reasons why things don't always work out, we don't think that we should have this asymmetry of risk and therefore we have a pay-as-you-go model. And when you finish a Penn Foster, even if you didn't complete, your obligations are prorated to the amount of uh, the amount of the program you've utilized, as opposed to what often happens is you know quite regrettably that the person is is uh, not only not able to complete the program for good or not good reasons, but they're also then had the pro double effect that they don't actually have the the resources because they still have the student loan obligation. So all of which is to say, it's an example of how we've tried to design into our enterprise this idea of purpose with a profit in that order. And it turns out in our enterprise, if we achieve higher purpose, we end up creating more profit, which we then reinvest in innovation to create more amplification, more access. And that's the flywheel that we think is uh, very unique to this privatized approach to workforce development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really interesting stuff. And it, it, it makes me think a bit about um, some of what I've seen from you as well around uh, evolving past the binary thinking about uh, sort of these monolithic degrees where, uh, you know, a bachelor's degree or an associate's degree, you know, we have a, a real crisis in, uh, in the U.S. these days around uh, the, the population who has some college and no degree. And uh, could you talk a little bit about that, how, um, you know, in some ways, thinking about the sort of terminal, uh, even an associate's degree, in some ways is uh, is somewhat uh, limiting in its thinking because uh, frequently the middle skilled employee needs to be uh, more incremental in her thinking about how do I get the skills that I need, how do I stay job relevant, how do I upskill uh, throughout my life, and. Uh, Certainly there's a place for associate's degrees and beyond, but I, I did think some of your perspective on this uh, was enlightening to me, and I'd, lo I'd love to hear you, uh, you share that with our listeners. Yeah, well, I think that there's sort of two sides. There's the, the provider marketplace segmentation, and then there's the needs of the learner. From the needs of the learner perspective, which should always be the true north, if you embrace the notion, as we all should, because it's just empirical at this point, that we're all going to have five, seven, 10 jobs in our career, then by definition, you would imagine that you would have to be intermittently upskilled in order to take those next subsequent jobs. If you're in the middle skilled part of the population, one might argue that that's even a more uh, demonstrable set of uh, step function changes. And so we're trying to create on-ramps to facilitate the idea that you're gonna come in and out of the education economy over decades, not over years. So that's point one. Point two is, I think that if given a choice, obviously all things being equal, it's better to have a bachelor degree. The data in terms of wage gains and sustainability certainly support that. However, um, if you're not a bachelor degree holding person, let's call your sub bachelor degree, there are a series of traditional definitions of success, which is the quote degree, which have tremendous merit, but perhaps in and of themselves are an incomplete perspective. And so we're trying to move the model towards more of a skill attainment orientation. So that if you, can essentially deconstruct the learning into skills, and there's a robust taxonomy of skills, the future person who comes for employment, at least in the middle school part of the population, may not come with their first order narrative being, I have an associate degree or I don't, uh, which is a more conventional notion. They may be coming saying, I've built a portfolio of skills 
that have been verified through uh, both traditional theoretical academic training coupled with work-based learning or experiential-based learning. And we think that if you were to look at a middle-skilled person's resume in five years, it, you know, the idea of where you got your degree is going to be very second order to the degree to which you can uh, affirm and prove empirically and objectively that you have skills. So we think skill attainment is going to change the way conversations happen. And therefore, what you will see is effectively a deconstruction of the traditional hierarchy of degrees, diplomas, and alike, and, and certifications into a, a new axis, which is this skills axis that we think will be very disruptive to the, the marketplace from the provider perspective, because the providers have always been very neatly bucketed and organized, because that's the way the regulators of the education economy have required. They make very clear and important distinctions uh, in terms of accreditation between a, you know, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, an associate degree, a certification, which you know, in their own right, there is fidelity to thinking about that, but not to the point where it becomes a, a rate limiting factor to the, the voice of um, opportunity, which is again, takes us back to the employer. From the employer's perspective, they don't really care whether I went to Westchester Community College or Bunker Hill Community College. What they care about is, does Frank Frankfurt have the 10 skills that I need to, in order to, to do the job? And so that becomes the, the disruptor to the traditional accreditation oriented approach. And so the good news, the bad news, depending on your perspective is, there is an emerging recognition amongst providers that there's a blurry, a blurring of segments in the education system. And so that's why you see some of the bigger players starting to think about how they move to different parts of the market. And the, the education providers that we know today will look very different five or 10 years from now. Although in many cases, the, the winners will still be the winners. They'll be offering very different types of programs with very different types of credentialing underpinnings and fidelity to them because that's what the marketplace is going to demand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, it just, you know, we're, we're, we're moving through this whole fascinating conversation really again, thank you for, uh, for joining. Um, just to make this a little more concrete uh, for folks. Um, I remember uh, at the Holland IQ uh, summit, um, you provided some examples around specific middle skilled uh, jobs. Uh, and uh, can you, can you, choose an example of a middle skilled job that is, uh, is relevant and uh, can kind of put, uh, put the population that you're talking about in the opportunity space that you're describing uh, into context uh, for folks. I, I, the example that I remember was uh, uh, veterinary uh, technicians. Um, can you provide a little more uh, color around uh, which middle skilled uh, jobs are really growing and, uh, and why, uh, so that folks can, can kind of get some specificity to their thinking about the space? Absolutely, so uh, if you look at it from, uh, let's call it the more advanced middle skill roles, uh, they would commonly be uh, credentials that are objectively attained that oftentimes not always have national exams to verify uh, proficiency and commonly involve some level of externship of hundreds of hours or more. So some of the examples, at least in the Penn Foster portfolio, in the animal health world, as you mentioned, vet technician is one of the fastest growing jobs in the country. Uh, the rate limiting factor to animal hospital growth in the United States is actually there aren't enough vet techs, there aren't enough veterinarians, and it's a, a, a multi-billion dollar market. Consumers spend lots of money, and the vet tech becomes essentially the physician assistant or uh, uh, 
physician assistant equivalent for in, in an animal context or a nurse practitioner equivalent. If you look at pharmacy technician, would be another classic example. Obviously, the mega trends on uh, healthcare are self-evident, 19% of the GDP. There are three or four different occupations that we particularly view as important growth opportunities and middle skills for allied health, including um, the uh, pharmacy technician, uh, the home health aide, uh, certified nursing assistant would be three examples. In the manufacturing context, uh, the manufacturing economy continues to change, but as I mentioned, our, our most recent proprietary research affirms that there are many, many manufacturing jobs that uh, there's an acute shortage due to um, really multiple factors. One is the so-called silver tsunami, where in some of the plants in Indiana, 30 or 40% of the people who work in the plant could actually retire or qualified and eligible to retire in the next 24 months. So you've got a massive supply demand imbalance and uh, you have some very different kinds of skills that you need to have. And what's interesting about those roles I cited, in every case, they not only require tacit domain knowledge, uh, so-called theoretical academic knowledge, in all cases, they also require an applied knowledge. So in the case of the vet tech, uh, to complete a program uh, with national certification, in your second semester, you'd have to do a 240 hour uh, externship in a animal hospital, and then in your fourth semester, 100 hours. There's sort of corollaries for that in several of the other areas I cited, such as pharmacy technician. And then the last thing I might mention, which is, takes us a little bit back to the earlier conversation, is that while it may be the case that you want to be a welder, which by the way is a very lucrative job and there's a massive supply demand imbalance, this is where non-traditional credentialing starts to play a role. Because if, if you and I both started down the welding path and you took uh, three of the big modules and I dropped out of the first one, uh, and then ultimately you finish the whole thing, you know, whether you, uh, you know, did three modules or six and got to completion, even if you just did the three, you obviously are far more qualified to work in a, in a job environment than I would be. And so what we would do in Penn Foster's model is we would offer you skill attainment badges. And so you would go to the employer and say, I've secured badges in these three domains that are part of the larger architecture of being a welder. Uh, it could be, you know, safety management, metallurgy, some basic things, but maybe not the advanced status. But, but the point is the current model of education is so uh, un, unrealistically binary as if the fact that you didn't go all the way to the end inherently makes you incapable is not just practically true. If you took 150 hours of welding versus 250, it may be the case you didn't finish, but you clearly have more market value than you would have had otherwise. And so what we're trying to push is a combination of a completion narrative, because that's always the right idea, but also a skill attainment narrative that says we should acknowledge and reward and celebrate people who gain skills, even if they didn't go quote, all the way to the traditional end. And that's where the education system's out of sync with the labor market, because the labor market values skills. The academic system has a more binary definition, and we think that's one of the things that's going to be disrupted over time because the voice of employers has become so much more pronounced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really, really interesting stuff. Uh, and uh, I think highlights uh, maybe the mis misalignment of focus at times that, uh, you know, frequently folks who are quote unquote thought leaders in education and the future of work tend to think of people like themselves, people who have advanced degrees, who have, uh, you know, access to, 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 to income and convenience in their lives. And uh, frequently that, that, uh, then leads to a bit of a head in the sand um, sort of mindset around where the real opportunity is, uh, you know, or at least one of the big 
uh, emerging opportunities in the next, uh, say, five to 10 years is going to be around the, these middle-skilled employees. And then also, I do find it really, um, uh, in some ways, uh, heartening that uh, it's not really the dystopian, uh, the robots are coming for our jobs uh, narrative. Uh, in many ways, the, the emerging technology, even the example of, uh, you know, a veterinary uh, technician, you know, that's going to require more skilling, more reskilling of the human workforce as the automation gets better. And then when you talk about things like healthcare uh, or animal uh, health, um, there is always going to need to be that human layer uh, because of the nature of the work. And um, that combined with the mission orientation and uh, the, the concepts around the dignity of work that, that I think uh, really certainly resonate with me uh, make, uh, make your work uh, super interesting uh, to myself and hopefully to, to our listeners. Uh, frequently what we like to, to uh, so you wanted to jump in? I was just gonna make one final comment because we had talked about just at least at the top line these five trends. One of the other trends which links to a point you were just making is there's often a discussion as there should be about last mile services of is Johnny ready for job interviews? Johnny have a resume? Is Johnny on LinkedIn? And those are essential services for employment. Uh, but as you mentioned, this cohort of folks do have unique life challenges that um, in some sense are the same as ours, but are very different because they have different access to resources than we do and oftentimes different degrees of freedom. And so the term that we use is first mile services. The first mile services uh, are all the types of things that can get in the way of pursuing your career. It could be uh, mental health services. It could be elder care. It could be navigating, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a small legal matter. Uh, it could be transportation. These are all very practical constraints that impede a person from, quote, staying earnest to their commitment to school, not from lack of intention, but just because life gets in the way. So we're spending a fair amount of time thinking about how do we at scale, you know, we serve over 100,000 adult learners a year. How do we scale first mile services in the same way that traditional institutions are mindful of trying to scale last mile services, which is not to say it's not important, it, the aka last mile services, simply to say it doesn't really matter what happens at the end if you can't get started because your childcare broke down or you can't get tokens for the bus or you don't have food sustainability. And so we're trying to deal with some very fundamental issues on the Maslow's hierarchy that, that are oftentimes presumed in a more classical white collar context, which speaks to your point of, it's always important if you are not like the people you service to make sure that you have uh, what you say, being proximate to the problem. You can be abstractly in support of something, but if you're not into the particulars or you don't have, if you're not proximate to the problem, because that's not your life, then you need to find ways and manufacture ways to be proximate. Mm -hmm. And in our case, because we deal with tens of thousands of learners you know, every week, we are, proximate to the problem. So we hear and we listen and we understand these are the kind of challenges these folks have and they need credible, scalable remedies. And that's one of the things that our brand stands for. We're trying to be an advocate for you, not just an educational institution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely comes through and everything, uh, everything I've seen from you and uh, from your organization. Uh, as we conclude here, Frank, we typically like to ask our guests uh, as an educational trend spotting show, um, are there broad trends that you're tracking that you think will be future will be important to the future of learning in the 2020s? Pretty much everything we were discussing thus far, I think, would fall in line with that. But is there anything 
um, that we haven't talked about that you uh, that you've been tracking or you think is uh, is important just to keep our eyes on as we're trying to understand where the future of learning is heading in say the next five to ten years? Well, I think there's a lot of conventional answers that I claim no greater uh, knowledge about than many other folks you have on the on the podcast. Maybe a, a non-traditional pathway into your question would be that if you look at the investment in education as a financial market perspective, as compared to say healthcare, it's actually a substantially under-indexed investment class. If you look at there are trillions of dollars sitting on the sideline from pension funds and private equity funds and uh, all these other types of financial instruments. There's a tremendous amount of money on the sidelines and what they're seeking is a fair return. But to your earlier conversation, they're seeking a place to invest their monies where there's a social dimension to the return model, not just a financial return. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're gonna see over time is a lot of these institutions are gonna move into education. They're gonna seek opportunities to fund both traditional and non-traditional providers. And so I think because of this uh, influx of massive amounts of capital that's sitting in the sideline that people want to deploy for greater financial return and social purpose, I think you'll see a very different competitive set five, 10 years from now in the education system at large, at least in the middle skilled and the higher education bucket, because that capital needs to be put to good use. And when those folks start uh, releasing those and deploying those dollars, they're going to fund a lot of nascent companies that either are early stage today or don't exist, and they're gonna help transform some of the scaled providers that are out there. And I think an interesting way to frame it is that the financial market changes in terms of the allocation of capital might be the most important catalyst for innovation and education because where there's capital, there's talent and innovation. And at historical levels, that hasn't always been the case, particularly in the middle skilled, which has been significantly underinvested in compared to K-12 and higher ed. Mm -hmm. I think you're gonna see a lot of changes from financial players coming in, particularly in the social impact world, and really changing what they seek from providers. And those providers are going to create very new classes of solutions for learners and ultimately for employers. Hmm. Great insight. And uh, ending on an optimistic note in terms of uh, in your prediction. So uh, thanks again, uh, Frank Britt, the CEO of Penn Foster, for joining us on Trending in Education. Uh, you are a wonderful guest. And uh, hopefully, our listeners uh, were somewhat illuminated from the broadening of perspective uh, that's provided by you, Frank. And if folks want to learn more about what you're talking about or if they want to uh, track these types of ideas, uh, do you have any recommendations in terms of where they should go? Well, we do a fair amount of thought leadership work at Penn Foster. Uh, so you can go to uh, the Penn Foster blog called FosterEDU. Uh, Frankfurt.com is also a good place that houses a lot of the work that we do uh, as a derivative of, uh, of my work in uh, in the industry at large. And uh, that's where most of the good Penn Foster related work ends up. I, I'm not by any means the only voice uh, and thought leader at Penn Foster, far from it. Uh, but we, we think our role is to help elevate the conversation as much as to deliver value to our consumers. And uh, so we, we, we like to think we offer some interesting, perhaps often non non traditional perspectives on the world of work and the world of education, and we sit at the nexus of both. So I'd, I'd probably check those places out. Excellent. Uh, thanks again, Frank, for your time. And uh, for our listeners, uh, we'll be back again soon on Trending in Education.